Good morning. Can you hear me? Am I almost on? Hello? Am I good? Can you hear me? All right, we're good. Hi there. Like Greg said, my name is Jolene, and I have the honor. You get to hear me two weeks in a row. Aren't you lucky? Well, we'll see anyway, right? Anyway, I am so happy to be here today. I was blessed that um, Jenny and Noah asked me to come. I uh, thought I would just give you a little background on me because some of you probably recognize me. I work at Options Clinic, and so um, I've been to lots of banquets, and many of you have been to banquets. So you recognize my face, and I only recognize a few of your faces. But um, I grew up in a Christian church and was raised with amazing parents, who some of you here know, and uh, went to college, ended up getting married. Um, my husband and I, pastors, we actually were pastors, um, associate pastors at Helena First Assembly for about nine years. And we had the opportunity of just getting really involved and helping and leading people to Jesus. And it was such a, a special time for us. Um, but sometimes life happens. <laughs> sometimes the unexpected happens. And you don't know, and it's not how you plan your life. But you get the choice, and I had the choice of how I was going to walk through it. Divorce is not something that I ever planned for my life. When I imagined marriage, divorce was not one of the ideas. It's not something I never wanted for my children. But it happened. And it was in those times when I thought I wasn't going to make it, when I thought, there is no way, God, I don't see how you can use something like this for something good. And it was incredibly heartbreaking to go through attorneys and parenting plans and custody battles and all of the hurt. And it was in the midst of that where I had a choice. And I knew that God had a plan because I knew that God works all things together for good. But I'll tell you, it did not feel like it right then. It did not feel like there could be any good. But I had to choose to believe that God had a plan. And I could have chosen bitterness, anger, and unforgiveness and see where that could have gotten me. But because of God's great love and because I knew my God, I chose to say, okay, God, how do you want to use what I'm going through for your glory? And it wasn't easy. But I will tell you, to see what God has done in my life, in the lives of my children, I have four kids, I have three daughters, and then my youngest is a, is a son. To see that God can use terrible situations and bring good, oh, it blesses me so much. Not only that, but God brings restoration. And God steps in and does more than we could ever imagine. So through this time, God brought me to Options Clinic. And I will tell you, I never thought that God would be able to use me again. Because we have a judgment on divorced people sometimes. I've been one <laughs> who judged. And it's until you're in that situation that you're like, oh, there's more to the story. Oh, there's something I didn't know. 
So I didn't think God could use a divorced person again. And I'm so glad that he blew my mind. That he doesn't give up on us and he doesn't let our circumstances determine who we are and how he can use us. I've been, I'm still involved at Helena First. It's amazing. I had so many people around me to support me and to say, you know what? God isn't done yet. And I'm so, so thankful. That's just a little background on where I have come from. And I actually get the opportunity to speak at our church once in a while. For some reason, our pastor trusts me. I don't know sometimes. But it's such a blessing to me. And so when I had the opportunity to come here, I uh, at first was like, are you sure, God? And he's like, yep. I'm like, okay. Well, here I am. So thank you for having me. So like I said, I have four kids. Um, my oldest is 21. She is actually engaged. She's going to be married in July to her high school sweetheart, and she's planning to be an elementary school teacher. They go to school out in Minneapolis. Um, her name is Faith. Uh, my daughter, Hope, is 20. She's currently in Guatemala. Um, God has led her there to do a study abroad program, and so she's doing missions work there and just seeing what God wants to do with her life. My third daughter is Eliza, and she is a sophomore, and she is just full of fun. She and my youngest son are best of friends, and it's just a, such a neat thing. And then Ezra is 13, and when he was a little boy, he loved Grizz football. I don't know if you're Grizz fans or if you're Bobcat fans, but he's passionate about Grizz football. He started going to games when he was just little. Here's a little picture of him. Um, at one of the first games that he got to go to. Yes, he's adorable. Oh my gosh. The poor, I mean, look at him. His blonde, curly hair. He has big brown eyes. He has dimples. My daughters are always like, Mom, he gets away with everything. I'm like, but look at him. He's so stinking cute. Anyway, he loves Grizz football. And he, would, he knows so much about it. He loved getting signatures of, from the players. They would sign his jersey or they would sign his helmet. If you go to the next picture. And this was like the prize possession, right? To get a Grizz player to sign your jersey. So cool. One time, he even got the wristband of one of the players. Sweat and all. You can see the next picture here. Yep. It was signed, and he is a proud boy. He got that wristband. I'm pretty sure, we, sweatband, I guess it would be. He, we still have it. He's passionate about his Grizz football. And he, he knew all the players. He could tell you their stats, where they came from. Um, even the ones, you know, especially the ones that wore the special number, right? The 37 number, right? Is that the right number? Yeah, 37. Um, he could tell you the years past who was number 37 and what their stats were. And such a huge, huge fan of Grizz football. Now, he can be a huge fan, but to actually be a player on the team would require something completely different, wouldn't it? He could not just be a fan in the stands and know how to play football. He could know, have book knowledge, he could know things, but to actually get down there and be a player would require some work. It would cost him something. He would have to learn 
their place. He'd have to train. He'd have to run. He'd have to practice. He'd have to, you know, be used to getting tackled and all that stuff. Like, he would have to do more to be a player than to just be a Grizz fan. Now, I can look around here, and I can imagine most of you here have heard a lot of sermons about following Jesus, about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to know God. I want to still tell you and share with you about following Jesus, and I ask that you just listen for you today. So often when we come to church, and we've been coming to church a long time, we are listening for someone else in this room. Or we're listening because that person needs to hear this. But I just want you to just say, you know, God, what do you have for me today? What do you have that you want to tell me about? Now, when Jesus talked about followers, he had two different kinds of followers, didn't he? Let's go to Matthew 4, verse 23. It says, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and the people soon began bringing him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. These people were fans of Jesus. They wanted to be in on the next big thing. I want to see what Jesus is going to do. I want to see, I want to be there when he heals someone so I can tell people I was there. I was the one. I, I, I saw it with my own eyes. So many of these people, they followed because they wanted to be in on the next thing. They were Jesus fans. They could probably have told you a lot about all the things that Jesus did. They could tell you all the right answers. But for these kind of fans, there was no obligation. No reason to, just no commitment, right? Just, I'm just going to go and see what I can see. I'm just going to see what Jesus is going to do today so I can say that I was there. Now, I don't know if very many of you are on social media, but we have Facebook and Instagram, and it's a big deal how many people, at least it is for the younger people, you know, like how many people follow me? How many pe friends do I have? And I know for me, like, things come through your feed and you can read and you can hear people's stories and you can, um, lots of people post the things that are really hard or, you know, things that are going on or they're like, I need a babysitter. I, you know, I'm really desperate for this. And it's so easy on Facebook to just say, if I was there, I would do this for you. Because you know there's no obligation because you're not there. So you don't have to have follow through right? Like, super easy to do. And from a distance, we're all a little braver. <laughs> yep, we're all a little braver, whether it's on politics, whether it's on a religious thing, whatever it is, a story that's going around, we are all more brave when it is on social media, or even when we're on the phone and we don't have to see the person face to face. Because, you know, when you're a fan, 
You can know the right things to say, but you don't have to back it up. There's the people that put on a good appearance, but have no proof in their lives. These are the first followers that Jesus had. Let's go a few verses back and see some other followers. Matthew 4.18 says, One day as Jesus Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called to them too. Immediately they followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. Now these men were called to follow Jesus sacrificially. They had to leave behind their old lives. They even left behind their father This kind of following was going to require more than just their words. It was going to require proof that they wanted to be like Jesus. They even were going to take on a new profession in order to follow Jesus. Jesus was asking these men for commitment. Because the proof that something is true in our lives is not that we can say it, but that we can live it. The proof that something is true in our lives is not that we can say it, but that we can live it. Jesus goes on in Matthew 16, 24, and he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So from this verse, we see that Jesus is saying, if you actually want to be a follower, not a fan, you're going to have to put in some work. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Okay, but let's just pause for a second. Because what do we know? We know that salvation is by grace, right? According to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. You can't earn it. It's not by the good works we have done, so none of us can boast. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So yes, salvation is a free gift. You can do nothing to earn your salvation. We have all messed up. We are all sinners, and we are only saved by the grace of God. But let me tell you, salvation is a free gift that costs us everything. Because when Jesus saves us, he loves us too much to leave us how we are. He loves us too much to say, you know what? Yep, you just keep living however you want. Kind of like being a parent, right? We love our kids with everything we are. But we love them so much that we want them to 
listen. We want them to be good citizens. We want them to be, live moral lives. So we discipline them. So we teach them. We correct them because we love them. Our love is not dependent on their actions. Our love is dependent on because we love them. But because we do, we work to help them be disciplined and to be who God wants them to be. Because we have all messed up, but God's grace has come in and has washed us clean. But God doesn't want us to stay that way. Even James says, faith without works is dead. Right? So, yes, we need faith, but we show our faith by how we live. Because the proof that something is true in your life is not that you can say it, but that you can live it. Let's go back to Matthew 16, 24, and let's just read it one more time. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I love it in the New Living Translation as well. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower... You must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. Okay, it says, turn from your selfish ways, deny yourself. What are we even talking about here? This means we have to give up our rights, our right to be angry. We have to give up our rights to have everything our own way. Give up our own agenda. It's, it's where we, are, we humbly do what God has asked us, even if we don't get the recognition. It's loving people more than we love ourselves. You know, just like if Ezra wanted to go be a player for the Grizz, when he got on that field, he can't just think about himself, can he? He has to think about the team and what his coach wants so he can be the best player that he can be. He would have to learn from those who have gone before him. Jesus is asking us, he's saying, deny yourself. Turn from your selfish ways. Listen to me, he says, because I have good for you, but I don't want to leave you as you were. So what are some of the things that it means to turn from our selfish ways? It means not giving in to what I want. Uh-huh, right? It's so easy to do, to think about what I want. Maybe God's asking us to have patience when we want to be angry, or we deserve to be angry. And God says, have patience. Maybe... It's that I need to be kind when really I want to lash out at someone and give them a piece of my mind. That's turning from my selfish ways. What I want to do. What about being genuinely happy for someone when I really want to be jealous? What about forgiving when I want to hold a grudge? You don't know what they have done to me. You don't know what they have said to me. Following Jesus says, it's not what I want, 
It's what you want. Maybe it's being humble when really I want the praise. Maybe it's giving out to people even when no one recognizes me because I want recognition. So following Jesus is saying, I'm going to give even if no one knows. Maybe it's holding my tongue when I want to gossip. Ooh. <laughs> That's asking myself, what is mine to share? I get caught in that sometimes. What news is mine to share and what is not? Because I want to have the last word. I want to prove that I have something good to say. I want to tell, you know, it's a prayer request. So it's okay to share. Sometimes it's gossip and we just cover it over. Maybe it's we need to listen instead of judging. Listening to understand instead of judging how we would do things or judging only what we can see. So the first part of being a follower, not just a fan of Jesus, is to deny ourselves, turn from our selfish ways. The next part, it says, is to take up your cross. Now, back in Jesus' times, the Romans were in control, right? And the Romans, as, as their punishment for many wrongdoers, they would make them carry the cross or the crossbeam of their cross to their execution. So to, for Jesus to say, take up your cross, that is saying, if you follow me, you are willing to die for me. Now, many of us in this room, probably mo most of us, if not all of us in this room, will not be asked to die for our faith. There are people around the world that are. There are churches in different countries. They have to sign something when they go to church that says, I am willing to suffer and die for Jesus. Or they don't get to come to that church because it is such a risk to follow Jesus. We don't, we don't have that here. I'm so thankful. So what does it mean for us to take up our cross? It means that we give up our expectations, our revenge. Sometimes it means we give up what I want, and I'm going to just say, God, whatever you want. I'm going to give up those things that are all about me so that I can be a true disciple. Because the proof that something is true in your life is not that you can say it, but that you can live it and you can walk it out. So God tells us, turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and then does he just leave us there and say, no, I'm not going to help you. Oh, and I'm so thankful, aren't you? I'm so thankful that he doesn't leave us hanging. In John 16, 23, Jesus um, is talking to his disciples. And he's telling them that he's going away. And I can imagine being a disciple in that time. And you, you've been following this man. And you want to give your life for him. And now he's saying that he's going away. But Jesus says, I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send an advocate. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And John 16, 13, it says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus says, yes, I'm going away, but you are not going to be alone. I am sending the spirit of truth to help you and to guide you. And then in 2 Peter 1.3, Peter says, His divine power, which comes through the Holy Spirit, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Does that mean it just happens? Nope. I can have all the ingredients in my house to make a cake. But if I don't put some action into making the cake, no cake is going to just magically happen because I have everything I need. It takes action. Another one of Ezra's favorite players, he loves basketball these days, he loves Steph Curry. I don't know if y'all know about Steph Curry, but he plays for the Warriors. Ezra is a huge Warriors fan, and I try to tell Ezra about Michael Jordan. He's like, Mom. I have convinced him that Michael Jordan was a good player, but he still thinks that Dear Steph Curry is the bomb. And actually, NBA analysis say that Steph Curry did for the three-point shot what Michael Jordan did for the dunk. Okay, so they're both really good players. Well, as Ezra and I were talking, he likes to show me videos, and I get to watch a lot of NBA videos. Aren't I so lucky? And... um, Anyway, he showed me this video that, where Steph Curry was talking about his dad, Del Curry. Del Curry was also an NBA player who was known for his three-point shooting. So Steph grew up going to all these NBA games. He grew up be, probably being one of his dad's biggest fans, cheering from the stands, and I'm sure his dad played basketball with him, and his dad, you know, would teach him what he knew. And I'm sure Steph Curry wanted to be like his dad. And you know, he was a great fan in the stands. But in order for him to actually be a player and not just a fan, he had to get on the court and he had to learn. He had to listen to what his dad had to say to be a good three-point shooter. He had to get on the court. Steph Curry could have said, I'm a really good basketball player because my dad was, or my dad is. Nope. The proof of Steph Curry being a good player is when he's on the court and he's putting action to his words. That is when he proves who he is, that he is a basketball player. He had to be an active participant in learning basketball. We get to be active participants in how we follow Jesus. Now the last part of that verse, it says, Jesus said, uh, to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That kind of following is a lot like Steph Curry. It's not just going through the motions. 
It's not just posting the good verses on Facebook. It's not just going to church or giving money. But then at home, our lives look different. Our wife or our husband or our kids know the truth of what you're really like, of what I'm really like at home. Following means that I say, Jesus, you have something I want. Teach me how to be more like you. I need to be more like you. I don't have what it takes, but with you, I do. When I decide to follow Jesus, I want to be more than a fan. Because being a follower of Jesus is not just talking about it, it's living it out in the things people see and the things people don't see. Because the proof that something is true in your life is not that you can say it and talk about it. The proof that something is true in your life is that you can live it in the public and in the private life. Does this mean that we ever arrive and we're ever perfect? <laughs> no. Just like Curry, okay? Steph Curry, he is the best three-point shooter. Does he make every single three-point shoot shot he, may, he shoots? Blah, blah. No, he doesn't. But he keeps on trying. And you know, he probably asks for pointers from his dad. Hey, dad, what can I change? What can I do to be better? What can I do to be a better basketball player because you see following Jesus is a journey we have never arrived if you think that you have arrived at being the best follower of Jesus and you have it what have it all together well you've just proven that you don't because in all humility none of us have arrived we all need Jesus Following requires action. The other day I had to follow my dad somewhere. And so he was driving and I was in my car. He's like, come follow, you know, just follow me over here so you know where to go. How, what would prove that I was following? That my car was moving. I could not sit in my car and my dad drive away and say, I'm following my dad. Nope, that's not following. Following requires action. We cannot follow Jesus and be the same as we were before. If I want to prove that I believe what Jesus says, I can't just talk about it, I have to live it. I can't just go through the motions, can I? So you might say, Okay, this sounds really good, but where do I start? How do I know what God wants to work on with me? So, I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was in high school, I was a freshman in high school, and some of my friends were like, you should join the golf team. And I was like, um, I've only ever mini-golfed. It is not the same thing as regular golf, right? And so I was like, okay, I lived in Shelby, Montana. There's not a lot to do. It's like, at least it'll give me something to do after school. I get to hang out with my friends. I'll go golf. I'll learn how to golf. 
And actually, my senior year, Shelby took the state golf tournament. That was pretty cool. And I got to be on the team, and my score counted. I don't know how that happened. But um, in Shelby, on the, for the golf team, there was golf pros. And so the golf pros would come over to our team once in a while and would give us pointers. And that's how I learned how to hold a club and how to swing and stuff like that. Well, after a few years, this golf pro came up to me and he's like, okay, so when you're holding your club, I want you to make an adjustment and I want you to put your thumb here instead of here. I was like, well, that's dumb. That's just a little teeny thing. That can't make that big of a difference. And I'll tell you, when he first told me and I tried to do it, it did not help me at all. Okay, and I was like, I could have been the type that was like, okay, I'll do what he wants when he's here. But when he's not here, I'm going to do it my own way, right? But I was like, I'm going to trust the guy. He's a really good golfer. I am not. So I will just trust that he knows what he's talking about. So I would make the adjustment, and I would swing. And sometimes the ball went where I wanted, and sometimes it didn't. And I would just make, try to remember, okay, make the adjustment, make the adjustment. I am so glad when I started out golfing that that golf pro didn't come up to me and tell me every single thing I was doing wrong with my golf swing. I would have been devastated and never wanted to golf again. But instead, I learned little by little how to be a better golfer. That is how Jesus treats us. I am so glad that when we decided to follow Jesus, he didn't come in and tell us all the things we were doing wrong and say, if you don't get it all right, then why even follow me? I'm so glad that he is so much more gracious and he gives us little things at a time that we can work on, that he can say, this is who I want you to be. This is what I want you to work on right now because Jesus is the following pro. I had a golf pro. Jesus is the following pro. So he can see in our lives what we need to work on. But I'll tell you, just like making that adjustment on my grip was not easy because change is hard. I will tell you that when Jesus comes and says, I want you to make this little adjustment, it's not very much fun. Because we have habits that we really like. No, that's, no, when she makes me mad, I have a habit of snapping back at her. No, when, she's, when he says this to me, or when he does this, my habit is this reaction. Habits are hard to break, and we don't like to hear about it. We have ways to manipulate that always work. We have actions that prove that we were right and they were wrong. But listening and adjusting our lives to one thing at a time is how we really follow Jesus. I don't have this verse up here, but I'm just going to read. In, if you continue in 2 Peter, so remember I read in 2 Peter 1.3, and it said that God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. If you go on in that chapter, it says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And to your goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, mutual affection. And to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, 
They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What I love about that is that it's God, Peter is saying, add this, and then add this, and then add this. And as you increase, he didn't say you have to have it all together. But as you increase in your knowledge of God, as you increase in living out, being a follower of Jesus, you will lead more productive lives. You will be more effective. Because really the proof that something is true in your life is not that you can say it, but it's that you can live it out. So today I just want to ask you, are you the type of follower that knows all the right things to say? Are you the type of follower that does the right things, goes to church, but in the back you're holding bitterness or anger or unforgiveness? I would venture to say each one of us has a little bit of something that we need Jesus to come in and work in our lives so that when we follow him, it's more than just our words, but we can live it out. So today, think about what adjustment God is asking you to make. Do you need to go from bitterness to forgiveness? From anger to patience. The need to be right all the time to listening to understand. Going from my agenda to how I can help someone else. From rude to kind. From telling little lies to get out of trouble or to cover something up to being speakers of truth, to go from worry and anxiety to trust in the Lord with your whole heart, from hurtful words to gentle words, from pride to humility, from complaining and grumbling to being thankful, from gossip to holding my tongue, from fear of failure to being brave enough to say, if God wants me to do it, I'm going to do it. From fear of rejection to thinking the best of people. I just want everyone to close their eyes for a minute. And I want you to ask God what adjustment he wants you to make in your life this week. It doesn't have to be big. So often it's, it's easy to think, well, I don't have any of the big sins. What does God want you to do? Father God, I pray that as we sit here for a minute, that you will bring to each person's mind a little adjustment, something that you want them to work on, so that they can live out what they believe in a bigger and more personal way.
Thank you, Jesus, that you are so faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a, there's a um, Bible study that I, I did many years ago. It's called Experiencing God. And one of the things it said is that so often we miss what God is saying because we don't actually think he's going to say anything. So when we ask God to do something, when we ask God to show us something about our lives, you should listen to what comes next. Listen to that still small voice and see what he wants to say. And you might think, okay, well, God asked me to do this but I'm not going to do it perfect, so why even try? Because you know what spiritual maturity is? Spiritual maturity is, when, is how long it takes us to be, from being corrected to making a change. So if you're in the middle of being angry and all of a sudden you have this thought in your mind, I need to be patient. And all of a sudden you're like, I, I'm going to make that change. I'm going to shut up right now. And I'm not going to say all these angry words. That is more mature than ignoring that still small voice and doing nothing about it. So this week, as you walk out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, listen to that still small voice that says, this is the change I want you to make so that the proof of what you believe is more than what you say, but it's how you live your life life. So Father God, thank you for today. I thank you that you have given us everything that we need for godly living. In your precious name, amen.